Welcome to The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Registry of Health Services Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Marcy Butlick, a clinical psychology doctoral student at Howard University, stepping in for Dr. Samuel Lustgarden. Today, I'm joined by licensed psychologist, assistant professor, and director of clinical training at Howard University, Dr. Deshaun Mance. Dr. Mance is an experienced researcher and licensed clinical psychologist in the area of community-based research, Child and, child and Adolescent Mental Health, and Mental Health Disparities. G is currently celebrating 15 years of providing psychological services to the Black community. Her research and applied work addresses cultural, contextual, and psychosocial factors that influence symptom presentation and intervention development for underserved communities. Dr. Mance has published numerous papers related to the impact of culture and contacts on psychological functioning of people of color. Additionally, she has received numerous rewards for the impact of her work from community stakeholders. Currently, her work centers on community-based participatory research, whereby she examines chronic stress, symptoms, and trauma in adolescents, and the effects of socio-environmental factors like socioeconomic status, racial socialization, structural racism, and the COVID pandemic on stress and coping among Black youth and emerging adults. Dr. Mance, thank you for being with us and welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Marcy. Yeah, no problem. Um, so we can just go ahead and jump right into it. I got a lot of questions for you today. <laughs> um, so you've done extensive work in community-based uh, participatory research and developing programs that in, invite communities of color to identify the problems they may be experiencing um, and remain an intricate, uh, intricate part of developing solutions that address risk factors, the development, and the social emotional adjustment of African-American youth. Um, can you tell me more about that? How did you become interested in that work? Absolutely, Marcy. Uh, this, that's a great question to begin our discussion today. I love to share my journey with others, particularly how I became interested in community-based research um, and around psychological development and mental wellness for Black youth. And I like to emphasize the mental wellness because I, I do think uh, sometimes our, our field, we focus on deficits. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I want to really, really kind of uplift and focus on the, that uh, positive psychological outcomes and mental wellness for, for um, Black youth, uh, youth who are historically been um, marginalized, right, and minoritized, so really kind of focusing on their development. So I was trained uh, in clinical child psychology at DePaul University in Chicago, and the program, it had an overarching like community mental health focus, and although there were two clinical tracks, like child and, um, I'm sorry, uh, it was a clinical the community and the child track, they both kind of espouse this community mental health that really focus on like diversity, equity, inclusion. So it was a just it was a Jesuit university. So the kind of the values and the goals were really kind of community oriented, if you will. So um, I got interested in the work really by my training there. And I, I would actually say it kind of goes um, before it kind of predates my clinical training. I think it was more so in regards to like the values that I held because um, knowing at a very young age that I wanted to pursue this field. Um, and so kind of coming from uh, an experience that was very community oriented collectivist and kind of taking that into the professional realm. And so I began working when I went into, uh, as a student at DePaul, working with Dr. Kathy, Kathy Grant with her Stress and Coping project and really focusing on under-resourced communities um, in the urban context and looking at chronic stressors and symptoms. Um, and coping for black and brown youth. And that just really kind of extended my work into my dissertation, which really focused on um, culturally centered interventions, specifically for uh, black girls. And I worked with a community organization called Project Butterfly. So you can see like, even within my training, it was partnering with communities and doing work within the community. So kind of centered around that and moving into my postdoc, with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation as a community health scholar based at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health doing CBPR work. That's when I was really trained and introduced into uh, community-based participatory research um, um, under 
um, under the direction of uh, Dr. Darius Tandon and Frias Onestine and their work with um, the Health and Opportunity Partnership, what we call the HOPE Project. So again, you can see uh, along that path, really doing community-based work and intervention and really centering it around uh, black and brown youth. So that really kind of be in the center, kind of focusing on mental health services and interventions. Right, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you uh, would think that the area of community-based participatory research would be um, more extensive or more widely used. I'm curious what you, in your opinion, um, is an overarching sort of benefit of working with communities um, and creating um, ha them having a voice in sort of um, what services they need and what help we can provide as um, clinicians? I would definitely say right out of the bat, that the answer is in the question that you asked in regards to the voice. So I think that is so critical. It's really important to have the voice of the individuals you, you wish to serve and kind of really kind of providing the context around, around the issues um, that are kind of um, per pervasive, if you will, to kind of really get an understanding of the context around it. What does it look like for this particular community? What does it look like for an individual who have, has these experiences? So kind of bringing that voice to the table, it brings nuance to our understanding. So yes, we have the science. You know, we can understand it from, a psych uh, from the science standpoint and kind of understand the psychology of it. But part of understanding that psychology is understanding the cultural component, understanding context. And I think having the voice of individuals who have the lived experience really brings another layer of credibility to, to the interventions. You know, we really espouse evidence-based evidence -based, um, treatments or evidence-based interventions. And I think part of the evidence is the lived experience and really kind of bringing that into the work. Exactly. Yeah. It sounds um, like wonderful work that you're doing. Have you, um, with the work that you've done with youth and children, are there any particular outcomes that um, have been long lasting in terms of treatment? Mm, that's a really good question. I would definitely say um, a lot of the work is really kind of focused on building a sense of community. Mm -hmm. So when you have communities that are kind of insular, and um, so what that means is that you are, you're an outsider, right? So there, so every community kind of has its own kind of um, structure, if you will. And so even within that sense of community, um, I mean, in, even within the community, understanding um, connections, how those connections are, are made, and then also the psychoeducation piece. So there's um, connections and, and there's these norms. And so there may be this norm of kind of um, being desensitized or norm that may be more maladaptive or not as helpful along someone's uh, mental health journey. So then kind of building the community within the community in regards to being support. So I've definitely found this uh, kind of having supports that are long lasting, that are sustainable. Mm -hmm. So that's when we really kind of get into the language of sustainability of, mm -hmm. of programs and sustainability of supports. Um, I feel like that has definitely been more of kind of long lasting and, and really giving the helping the community to, um, to have their, their resources to sustain that support that they have um, coming out of the interventions. Right, and you mentioned that um, in uh, these particular communities or communities of color, there are um, certain um, environmental factors, if you will, that um, are considered norm normal for that particular environment. And one that I'm kind of thinking of um, is on um, things like exposure to um, violence or community violence or um, interaction um, in these environments with um, police and police brutality. So I'm curious if you've noticed um, in your work how that's affecting the adjustment of say children or young um, adolescents, um, their social and emotional adjustment in these communities. Hmm, I think I, I want to kind of really understand the question and kind of really couch it in a way where the communities, because I, I, I do believe that even though there are communities that are under-resourced and there are communities that may have more challenges, there are strengths, mm -hmm. right? So there are definitely strengths within the, within the communities. Um, and also, although there may be 
um, certain incidences that occur at higher rates, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's normalized, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, it may be that one becomes desensitized because it because of, of how frequently it may occur. Um, but also, I don't want to necessarily tie that to race and ethnicity, and I don't want to necessarily tie it to other variables that that could could it could be problem, problematic in regards to how we interpret it, right, and how we make sense of it. But I do want to tie it to. I have no problem kind of really understanding it and tying it to a structural component, right? Mm-hmm. So really kind of looking at if you want to add in the language and kind of really call it call it sometimes what it is the structural racism that exists around. Um, certain communities and uh, access to resources, kind of couching it from that lens and seeing how, how the impact of under-resourced structural racism, how it impacts youth development. I think that is a, I think that's where we, where you're, where we're going in regards to this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think that's the direction which the question, you, the spirit in which you were asking the question. And so I want to, I want to make sure I, I get that right. Is that, is that? That's definitely where I was going with that. Sorry. That, yeah, I, <laughs> I, had a simple, I had a simple understanding of a very complex um, presentation of um, issues. So I appreciate you clearing that up. Thank yeah, you. yeah. And I'm so happy you said that. It's very complex. I'm so happy you said that. It's very complex. So, I mean, when we kind of think about exposure to violence and the impact it has or the the having more conversation around the impact of of microaggressions, macroaggressions, kind of like that racial, um, the racial trauma, if you will, racial stressors and the impact that it has on youth. We kind of begin to kind of think about um, the impact it has on the sense of self and how it may impact uh, more of kind of having a fragmented sense of self that we kind of view it as trauma and kind of looking at it in a very um, compounded way or complex, uh, complex trauma, if you will. So it can, it can impact, um, maybe affect regulation, it can impact uh, cognition, self-concept of the, um, this loss of a sense of safety and trust um, can be uh, definitely be impacted. And even attachment, how one forms attachment, it may tend to form attachments in more of, of, of I don't want to necessarily say disorganized at times, it can be more of a disorganized attachment, but we know that youth uh, children use, they really thrive when there's predictability and consistency. And sometimes environments don't necessarily lend for that when there are a lot of environmental stress and stressors. So that can impact the attachment process because I never, um, the unpredictability of whether my needs will be met. Right. So we see it kind of impacting concerns of safety and security, but then also attachment and then also kind of affect and behavior regulation. It, it can impact it. Um, those areas of development. Mm-hmm. And um, sort of what do those effects have um, as these uh, as the youth transition into adulthood? The impact it has. So if I'm going to specifically kind of talk about, let's say we specifically talk about exposure to violence, I kind of continue that conversation because we kind of gave that as an example, right? So mm-hmm. we kind of continue with that and how it affects this transition to adulthood. What we know is like exposure to violence during adolescence can be tied to more um, it can be tied to negative mental health outcomes later in life. And for some, even what we call um, pro-violent attitudes, if you will, not all, but some. Um, so, at, so adolescents who may experience um, or be exposed to kind of multiple forms of, of violence or, or trauma, if you will, the cumulative exposure to it over time can be detrimental. Um, and so essentially when they're kind of emerging into adulthood, um, because they can be disproportionately affected by, by violence and violence exposure um, than, their, than their peers, uh, colleagues of other ethnicities, if you will, or so, socioeconomic statuses also, um, we, what we can, it can impact the way they perceive stress. It can mm-hmm. um, impact um, their, their, their relationships, their adult relationships. Um, it can impact their physiological stress responses. Um, it can also impair neurological development as well, um, moving from adolescence into, into adulthood. So we know that it definitely has some, some effects and can have some even latent effects can pre- persist um, even into adulthood. It sounds like the 
complexity of trauma or trauma exposure has not uh, only a deleterious effect on emotional and social adjustment in children that um, there are also effects seen later in adulthood. Um, and you did mention that in communities, there are strengths and um, protective factors that might mitigate um, sort of these effects that we might be seeing. What, what um, in your opinion, are those protective factors? Mm, good question. Some of the protective factors so there, there are some communities where, um, remember I mentioned, I said there's some communities that are, that are insular and sometimes we, that can be a good thing and sometimes it can, it can, um, can, can be challenging, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those that have that, that, again, kind of going back to that sense of community and that connection, um, where let's say there's an emphasis on one of the protective factors we've, we found, um, and there's some mixed, mixed um kind of evidence, if you will, related to um, identity development. So specifically for youth of color, kind of really leading into racial identity development and kind of um, communities that really emphasize or support that, that those kind of strengths within one's racial identity and ethnic identity development. We've seen those as, as um, protective factors. And then uh, those connections to uh, um, I would just say, I was going to say family members, but it isn't always necessarily family. Um, it's more of like what we call either a, f- a fictive kin or people we've kind of adopted as family members, if you will, in, in certain communities. And so kind of being seeing that, those connections or what we call in the literature, more of like just different supports. Um, so the various type of, of systems of support um, um, that the youth may have can definitely be a protective factor as well. Um, and then kind of some of the kind of having access to actually having access to resources that can, um, mental health resources. So services like actually having the access to, and then we kind of come into the conversation of having access and then actually utilizing our our two different things. But for, for some just having access to know that this is an option, like really kind of normalizing the discussion around mental health and then knowing that services now become an option because we normalized it. We've we've opened it up to be a part of our, our discussion. So we've kind of seen that the access and the psychoeducation as being um, protective factors as well. Um, and then in terms of that, um, providing mental health services, um, what would you say should be um, at the forefront of a clinician's mind in treating individuals who are exposed um, to community violence or vicarious violence? Hmm. That's, a, that's a really good question. So what would be at the forefront um, of the mind of someone who's experienced community violence? I, I, I think I often, um, even with, them, with the, the courses that I, that I teach and kind of really focusing on trauma and, and mental health um, and being at, being at a historically black college university, HBCU, uh, there's a lot of, of emphasis on kind of health disparities, right? So kind of looking at the disparity that exists between um, um, kind of various, various diagnoses, but then access, access to services, but then also being very mindful about how we train our clinicians and Part of what we what we are focusing on at Howard University is really focusing our student uh, um, training our students to really have a social justice lens. So really kind of centering that perspective, and when we kind of engage uh, families, and when we engage communities, when we engage uh, individuals, when we engage clients. So what I would say, something to have in mind at the forefront forefront of your mind when you're uh, working with either a family or individual that had experience with with um, community violence. And this may be true within when we're kind of thinking about trauma in general, when we have a m- multiple layers, I think it's really important to not to make the assumption of what is priority in the therapy room. So when a client comes to us, uh, there's environments where there's a, a lot of violence um, or they've been exposed to violence and they may have been a, um, a loss. But when they come into, come into the therapy room, allowing the client to kind of prioritize what is most important. And it may not necessarily be talking about the trauma or what you may be assuming, maybe the presenting 
um, at the forefront of the presenting issues. It may be for for that particular client. It's like, you know, I just want to go to school and I don't feel safe. So kind of go, so really allowing at the forefront for the client to kind of give some some voice to how they want to prioritize uh, uh, their concerns. But then also at the forefront would would be essentially how the person kind of makes meaning of the experiences that they've had. So in regards to what does death means, what does it mean to, to the to the client, the the role of the, the violence kind of put it in the context in regards to how they make meaning of these experiences um, as opposed to kind of the, we have the literature, we know how trauma impacts the body, how it impacts the brain. We, we understand that, um, but definitely allowing the client to essentially give more, um, I don't necessarily say structure, but prioritize what is a, a most pressing for them, but then also kind of understanding how they make sense of the violence, how they make sense of, of, of the trauma, the kind of starting there. And knowing that it, it, it will take time, you know, like it's going to take time because we have to think about the nature of the trauma. We have to think about the cult, how culture may be impacting how um, the client may be responding to the trauma, the levels of support that they have. Um, and so we also have to think about the broader community, how it can influence their response to trauma. So all those things have to be kind of at the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned um, the training, uh, how the training at Howard um, focuses on a particular lens of understanding um, to sort of um, allow for the um, clinician to broadly um, take into consideration how the client is per- viewing their world. Um, is there any particular aspect of training you think that generally all clinicians should have? Um, in, in terms of um, addressing um, the broader sense of racial trauma um, in communities of color? Mm, that's a really great question. Um, I thought you were going to go in a different direction, but I do think that's a great question. And, and part of that direction, I was going to say, oh, that's great. Let's have a conversation about it. Being at Howard yourself, let's have a conversation <laughs> about that and about the training. Um, but I will say um, there's... So the question is, are there specific aspects of the training that we should focus on or make sure that our students have when we're kind of thinking about racial trauma, right? Is that, that's how, that's how we're centering the, the question. Um, so when we kind of thinking about, this is the interesting thing about racial trauma and what we have to understand is that it could be direct experiences of, of like racial harassment or threats of harm or injury. It could be witnessing racial violence towards others, a hate crime. And with, with social media and, and kind of having more access, if you will, to watching videos um, that can be, you know, triggers or um, that can be traumatizing in, in and of themselves, but then also kind of understanding when it comes to, to racial trauma or racial um, racial stress, racial injury, if you will, that for um, a person of color, black indigenous people of color, this is part of your identity, is part of who you are, is part of your lived experience. And we, we all have, we talk, definitely talking about the intersectional intersectionality of identities and how it impacts who we are, how we show up in the world, how the world responds to us. And when we kind of think about these different layers of of identity and because we're centering around um, racial trauma, so we're centering around race right now, we have to really kind of understand that your your race and um, being the racialized aspect of yourself can make you a target at any given time, Mm -hmm. right? And so really kind of understanding that um, every, so even everyday verbal or behavioral exchanges, whether they are intentional or unintentional, they can communicate hostility. They can communicate negative, uh, messages or insults, um, things of that nature and, and compounds by that, how it impacts you from the psych, the psychophysiological perspective. When we know that there's research that has been done, when we kind of think about, um, differences between people who may have the same um, educational background, have the same socioeconomic status, but when we kind of 
filter in race and we look at differences, we know that um, for people of color and in this example, um, uh, black communities or black people, they may be at higher risk for heart disease, higher risk for diabetes, higher risk for um, um, even uh, when it comes to black women and, and, and their births and, and um, um, infant death, things like that. So why is there a higher rate when we kind of, when we are, when we have individuals with the same level of education and the same level of, of economic resources and it comes down to uh, not not just, but it definitely a large component of it is related to the accumulation, the cumulative effects of discrimination um, of those racialized experiences that adds that extra layer of stress, that extra layer um, that impacts kind of, kind of your health. So you can be going about the day, uh, having a great day, and you go into the store, and there's this interaction is very racialized, and just kind of think about. For those who've had the experience, even if it's something, if it's a, a, a verbal, whether it's intentional or unintentional, someone making a comment about who you are, whether you belong or you don't belong, can send your heart racing, right? And the anger can kind of flare up and it's more so the frustration, right? And just kind of having those experiences over time, the cumulative effect that has on your health, it definitely kind of create um, these, these differences or these disparities. So when we kind of think about from a training perspective, we kind of think about really looking at the impact it has on health, not just the mental health, but also the physical health and making sure that we have a clear understanding of, of how racial, racialized experiences um, show up and how they impact uh, people's health um, and in turn, how they may respond or not respond. Um, to those experiences. So part of the training is kind of making room for those discussions. So for um, clinicians who might be interested in being a part of that conversation, um, do you have any recommendations or resources that you might be able to provide them? We're gonna kind of think about current trainings. So essentially we kind of act, uh, think about kind of current, current trainees or even readings. Um, if you go to um, EMDRIA website, they have a list of like events and training opportunities. Um, so they so they have listing of like a, a study course, a home study course on one on one racialized trauma course. Um, um, they have, and it's not specifically. They kind of give links to other people who kind of host this. So um, there's the elephant in the room: systemic racism and psychotherapy. There's EMDR therapy with Afrocentric critical race perspective. So there are a lot of different trainings that they have listed. Um, and then they also have lists of kind of podcasts um, that talk about different, um, different issues. So whether it's Therapy for Black Girls or Black Mental Health Podcasts or Minority Corner, um, uh, also On Being. Um, so different types of podcasts. Um, there are different books and textbooks um, about anti-racist psychotherapy was a book by David Archer, Anti-Racist Psychotherapy, Confronting Systemic Racism and Healing Racial Trauma. Um, mm -hmm. Nancy Boyd Franklin, uh, talking about therapy in the real world. Um, there's a number of different books. And in my course that I teach at Howard in um, Trauma and Mental Health, I talk a lot about Dr. Joy DeGray uh, with her post-traumatic slave syndrome, America's legacy of kind of injury and healing. Um, and, and I think that's really important and really key. Um, we're kind of thinking about educating oneself, kind of looking at it from the historical standpoint and how the effects of, of generational, the intergenerational trauma, how it shows up and the impact that it has on, on mental health. Um, so there are a number of resources. I know Rita Walker, she has um, the unapologetic guide to black mental health kind of navigating unequal systems, um, uh, focusing on like emotional wellness. So there are a lot of, um, a lot of opportunities out there training, um, good resources. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's, that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, if we could just hop back for a second, um, in your, uh, discussion of racial trauma and how the effects are, 
um, not only are they experienced as reoccurring, but the effects are long lasting and over a lifetime that affect um, both mental health and physiological health. Um, I'm just curious if, because um, recently the conversation about race and racism has focused kind of what we began talking about sort of on that structural racism piece and how environmental racial stressors impact health um, and exposure to things like uh, vicarious trauma via media exposure um, has impacted sort of um, presentation of um, say racial trauma and racial, uh, racial trauma symptomology. I'm curious if you've seen in your clinical practice, if you've seen any difference in individuals coming into care and what they're seeking or whether or not um, this vicarious experience of um, trauma related to exposure from media is uh, playing a role in how you're working with clients or how they're receiving therapy? That's a, that's a great question, Marcy. And I actually see it. I know we're kind of focusing on um, therapy, right? So we're definitely mm -hmm. kind of thinking about it in practice, but I, I actually want to kind of share how it shows up in the classroom too. Okay. Um, because many, many of the students, um, when I, when I teach this course, uh, it never fails. I often end up um, giving referrals. So I definitely like send students to uh, the counseling center, um, but and probably in most college campuses now, the counseling centers are overwhelmed. They're taxed, right? And so trying to, there really is a mental health crisis on college campuses right about now. And uh, particularly, um, I want to say particularly for HBCUs, um, just even in our own campus with how we're having two, I think three bomb threats this year and, and cyber attacks and things of that nature. It's really been very stressful for, for students in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and then we kind of think about um, the racial um, injustices and kind of seeing that on social media regularly. Um, it definitely has shown up in private practice and it definitely has shown up in the classroom. And I remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were kind of talking about um, racial trauma and you know, we we're having that as a topic of discussion in the classroom over several classes and the students really saying how um, social media, how sometimes they have to just kind of unplug or just kind of deactivate for a little bit because they were saying how um, it, it angers them and how they feel like others who are, who, so essentially kind of like this, the anti-Black kind of uh, rhetoric, if you will, that, that seems to be a spouse sometimes and how it feels like um, they're being laughed at and they're not being valued and how um, they just kind of get tired over time. All of that's mental health, right? So yeah, we're talking about in a classroom setting, but the work to really kind of have a safe space and create a safe space for the students to be able to unpack that, that's part of, that's part of um, health services, if you will. That's part of, yeah, I'm, the prof I'm their professor, but really then kind of making sure that they get access to the resources that they need and how it shows up. And, and for my clients in private practice, definitely at the, at the height of like the pandemic, when we first went into lockdown, let's just say May, 2020, Joy Floyd, George Floyd, um, we were just what, two months into the lockdown. Uh, so everything at that point was virtual. Clients were struggling. They were having a hard time and we're right here in DC. So, um, a number of my clients kind of going to the protest and experiences they were having at the protest um, and just really kind of the, I want to make sure I give the right language to it because a part of it is, was fear. It was mm -hmm. fear for particularly those who were parents. They were like, how do I raise my children? Like, how do I, what do I tell them to keep them safe? How do I keep my kids safe? And so for a lot of them, it was that, that fear. And then it was the frustration. It was, I heard a lot of language saying they were tired. Um, but then I also had a lot of, 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 of clients going to protests. So feeling like um, action. So essentially they, to engage and to kind of have a sense of coping was to have action. So they needed to have action in some way. For some, it was going to protest. For some, it was giving to organizations. And for, and for others, and I highly, highly support it. For others, it was self-care. And I'm like, you know what? Self-care is a form of resistance. 
when we talk about the concept of radical self-care, that is a form of political resistance because when we think about how society kind of have puts on these uh, unrealistic expectations on, on certain groups that have different um, intersectional identities, sometimes just kind of making room to take care of yourself is an act of resistance. And that being just as important as those who are going out and part of the protest are those who are giving their resources to community organizations who are serving different groups. Um, so did it show up in, in practice? Absolutely. And I would definitely say it was also an upsurge in adolescents who were asking their parents, I want to go to therapy. Um, and I've heard a lot of colleagues saying they have a wait list now um, because the reality is the combination of we think about the pandemic, but then we also kind of have to think about all the racial injustices and how it is impacting the, the, the psychology, the psyche of, of everyone, mm -hmm. right? Um, the need for mental health services and our capacity to be able to meet that need. I think we, we should be having conversations around it. I think there are conversations, but we need to have more. And beyond moving beyond conversations, there need to be action in regards to how we're going to meet this need. And that's when I kind of get into being a director of clinical training, kind of thinking about how we're training, training our students. So like even thinking like Marcy, thinking about how you are being trained and making sure that you will be able, I always tell my students uh, in the first year cohort, cohort, I tell them you are needed. You are, you are needed um, because most of our students are students of color and we're needed, you know, we need more therapists, period. <laughs> but definitely uh, we need uh, therapists who have varying and different lived experiences. And sometimes that comes with when you have um, different racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, uh, religious backgrounds and mm -hmm. sexual orientation, like all those different backgrounds. So we need it. I'm also curious if, um you feel that the the sort of need uh, for action in the community right now to help um, folks kind of deal and alleviate some issues or um, struggles they're having with the state of, you know, the Black community and um, the state of the country really as it relates to these topics. In your opinion, would you say um, things like community-based participatory research or intervention and action is needed? Um, now and how might we go about um, developing or implementing those sort of practices to look healing for the community? Absolutely. So I, I do think community-based uh, community research, it is important. I think having the research is important um, just as much as I, I feel like we are focusing on the care and the services um, and not necessarily the, the re the research is important, but then also just kind of providing the interventions, providing the services is, is important as well. And um, as you were asking that question, I was thinking, I was like, you know what, I didn't mention the Association of Black Psychologists and the work that they're doing around emancipation circles. And, um, and that's really like community and collective healing, like that process and really kind of facilitating that. And I think those are the types of, of uh, services that are needed. You know, absolutely, we always need research. I think research is important. Um, and I think kind of having the community-based research is important to kind of understand and prioritize what is needed and so that we can have, um, not just look in the short term, the immediate, but kind of think long-term in regards to what would be needed in the future and how we can kind of anticipate those needs and meet those, meet those needs. But definitely the, the work um, as it relates to service delivery in the community is, is definitely needed and important. As we begin to wrap up today, I'm curious to learn more about our understanding and treatment of racial trauma and how it will advance the excellence of clinical care and um, what the future of the field might look like. So uh, my question to you, Dr. Mance, is what would you hope for in terms of where the field goes um, and where clinical work uh, might strive to achieve um, in terms of racial trauma and healing um, for communities of color? Uh, my hope would be that I think 
are we going in the right direction? Because one of the things I'm beginning to think I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of your dissertation, I'm thinking of Dr. Carter's work in, in race-based traumatic stress injury and kind of really um, the work that, that Dr. Carter has done in regards to the model and an instrument around it. So, and I also begin to think about um, Dr. Um, Bryant Davis, um, incoming president of APA and her work and also kind of discussing racial trauma. I, I think the discussion, so is the, the research and, and having it being a part of the discussion um, is, is important. I think that's the first step. Again, it's just the, the, first, the first step, I think kind of going in long-term and where do I see in clinical care I kind of go back to first we have to train because is it going to show up in, in clinical settings? Absolutely. We just never asked for it. We, or if it did, it was, it wasn't at the forefront of how a clinician kind of conceptualize it. Most, most of the times because we're not trained, trained in that way, you know, from a personal experience, maybe a clinician did because of who they are, but how they were trained and not necessarily trained to kind of first and foremost, kind of think about, the person, um, if, even if we're thinking about trauma, you're not necessarily trained to kind of think about from a racialized context. So mm-hmm. I think when I think about the direction of clinical care, I kind of go back to how the training aspect of it and how we train and what types of questions that we are um, asking and, and how we are, the language that we're placing around race-based um, trauma events and stressor, stressors and kind of understanding how it impacts um, behavior, how it impacts the psychophysiological responses in the brain, kind of really kind of understanding that. So I think the direction that we go is really kind of not, and then not only addressing, I think it's important to not only address the person who's been impacted by it. So who may have been the recipient of the trauma, but it's really important to kind of understand and think of the psychology of hate the psychology of of the person who is engaging in the behavior. And if we think about microaggressions, whether intentional, unintentional, kind of really the the person having a sense of awareness of their actions, their language. Um, So even being able to, we have a lot of education that needs to go on, that needs to happen, um, but the training and even understand and kind of understanding um, not only how it affects people, but also how how one kind of conceptualizes and view it and think about it, think about the sense of kind of othering, like, you know, making it someone else other, um, kind of under, understanding that. And I don't necessarily know if I thinking like, oh, I want to, I want to treat that person to kind of get them to understand where they are um, but I, that's not, that's not, that's not what I, what I'm called to do, <laughs> but I will say, I think it's, it's important to have that as part of the conversation. Cause a lot of times we think of, we focus and we center, and I think it is important to center the individuals who may be impacted by it, being the recipient of it. That's really important, but I think it's important to also to think of the larger structure that perpetuates it and have that conversation as well. Um, and then begin to kind of dismantle it by implementing policy. I think we cannot have this conversation about clinical care if we're not gonna talk about policy mm-hmm. um, and different uh, policies that impact mental health, who gets access to it um, tr- um, and different types of resources um, as well to kind of break down um, the, the kind of clinical care piece. Okay, beautifully said. One more brief topic before we end here. I just was curious, we mentioned a little bit about um, the clinical program at Howard and its training. Um, And we've talked briefly about how there are only a few clinical psychology programs at at HBCOs. So I was wondering if you could talk briefly about that. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics. I I definitely love to talk about I love to talk about historical black colleges, universities, HBCUs, and um, I love to talk about Howard, <laughs> Howard <laughs> University. Um, and when you kind of think about the the training program at Howard, one of the professors there he says um, 
he has this quote he talks about, there's a lot of great scholars that came through Howard, you know, and he says, uh, as a black scholar, you stop at Howard and you get your anointing and then you depart to do the work. Um, and that's, that's a Dr. Campbell, Dr. Alfonso mm-hmm. Campbell. Um, but that anointing that he talks about is this sense of awareness and responsibility that is kind of bestowed upon scholars as they matriculate through Howard. So it's, there's a rich legacy when um, it kind of talks about psychological, when we think about psychological study and in scholarly knowledge and kind of how we um, translate research findings into um, application and stuff like that. So it's really important when we think about um, in the midst of today's kind of racial reckoning and and um, that, that includes witnessing police violence of unarmed um, black men and women, the murder of George Floyd, like all these attention to social issues and systemic equity. Uh, we were reminded that the Department of Howard, the Department of Psychology at Howard University, it, it, it really kind of seeks to integrate these issues of race equity and persistent quests for, for social justice. Um, and I don't know if a lot of people may know a little, just a little history about, about Howard, because I can go on, on and on about this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, Howard was, uh, when we kind of think about the Department of Psychology when it became like what we call the autonomous unit is when it was um, the chair of that department was Dr. Francis Sumner. And he's really important because we can often kind of give him the title of uh, the father, um, if you will, of black psychology. Um, um, Yeah, the father of black psychologists, if you will, because he was one of the first to earn a PhD in psychology. And he was, um, he was a, a chair of the department, if you will, the head of the department uh, when when the Department of Psychology first became an autonomous unit, if you will, as a, uh, as a department, standalone mm-hmm. department at, at Howard. Um, and we've had so many noted psychologists to kind of come through there. So we kind of think about um, the Clarks. So Dr. Kenneth Clark, Dr. Mamie Clark, um, they met and married while at, at Howard University and and their notable work that really played a key role in the um, Brown versus Board of Education, the Supreme Court case. It was Dr. Mamie's Clark, a master's thesis that explored uh, children's preferences for white over black dolls that um, pointed to the harmful effects of segregation. Um, and so, you know, like we have, we have such great scholars that kind of come out of there, like Dr. Dr. Hicks, he was the chair of the department for many, many years and one of the um, first uh, uh, um, black scholars to get a PhD in um, what would now be called neuropsychology. He's one of the, one of the first. So we just have the, the strong, strong history. And then we think of our clinical program. It was the first um, program, clinical program, to be accredited, to get accredited, um, get accreditation, right? APA accreditation. It was the first HBCU to have an accredited clinical psychology program. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're the first. <laughs> um, and so just to continue the, the work that we do and just the theory development that's come out of come out of Howard, um, just the work from like Dr. Boy, Dr. Wade Boykin, Dr. Alfonso Campbell, Dr. Jules um, Harrell, like all the work that kind of comes out of there is still um, um, just really focusing on health disparities and, and centering um um, censoring people of color, censoring um, black scholarship. Um, and and we, we take very seriously the work that we do in, in training our, our students and making sure that when they come out and they are a Howard graduate, that you understand what that means. When you have that Howard degree behind your name, that you are continuing a legacy of, of excellence. You're continuing a legacy of service. It's not just lip service. It's, it's really kind of publishing and providing um, sound clinical work that um, really focuses on, um, you know, just whether it's developmental, clinical, quantitative personality, really kind of understanding the role of culture, the role of context, and how it impacts the psychology of a person or group um, in a system. Mm-hmm. So you're, uh, you're very well-trained um, to do the work, but not only to do the work, to be leaders in the field. And yeah. honestly, people may not even know, but, you know, um, Dr. Sellers, Rob Sellers, 
a graduate of Howard University, their undergraduate psychology program. And every, you know, a lot of people use his, his multidimensional model of racial identity measure, MMRI. It's a graduate mm-hmm. of Howard. Um, a lot of people may have uh, heard of Dr. Alfred Breland Noble, and she's done a lot of work as she's a, a graduate from our um, of Howard University undergraduate program. Um, but we have a lot of uh, scholars now and, and uh, people who've come through our program who are currently in our program who I know are going to be extraordinary um, clinicians and researchers and they're going to be noted in the field. Like right now, the person I'm talking to now, the future Dr. Marcy Bielik, <laughs> can't wait for the wonderful work that you're going to do and how you're going to contribute to the field. Um, and that's why I, I kind of love talking about HBCUs because they they bring to the table something very um, important. Uh, and then the language that we use even is something that's very sacred um, in regards to how we train our students and how we center um, we center identities, we center health, um, whether it's mental health or physical health um, as it relates to um, the individual, but also communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we make room for uh, um, theories beyond the traditional theories. Mm-hmm. Some, someone used the term decolonizing, if you will, um, but we, we definitely, make room for theory generation, kind of generating theories as it relates specifically uh, to black indigenous people of color. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then also we are well-trained in the the traditional way of kind of thinking and doing things as well, because you have to be well-versed in what is current um, to also kind of make room for what is needed and to restructure Mm -hmm. how we've always done things. Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, I would I definitely agree with every sentiment um, (laughs) you expressed Um, I think it's important to understand sort of in your expression of the decolonization in that the what feels like in my experience as a graduate student prior to coming to Howard is that my early experiences is that um, uh, topics like the ones we've discussed today are, are considered anecdotally um, and compared to broader areas in psychology like personality. Um, so it's important to, to know that there are places like Howard that um, really put a microfire on um, these, these contextual and um, social uh, issues. Um, also, um, I definitely feel like I am standing on the shoulders of giants um, <laughs> here at Howard. So. I definitely agree. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. There's uh, definitely a lot of work to be done. And um, yeah, definitely a lot of work to be done. Dr. Mance, thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Marcy Butlick, stepping in for Dr. Westgarden, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Registry of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, all episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continued education. Mm-hmm.